it surprises me that they've clearly made the political calculation that they do not need doctors to win the next election is really, I think, what we're seeing. They have made the calculation that in order to privatize healthcare, they need to dismantle the Alberta Medical Association and they need to have way more control over how, what, and where doctors work. So they are willing to be as cruel and as dishonest and as underhanded as they need to be in order to pursue the objective that is ultimately privatizing as much of the healthcare system as they can get away with. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. I'm Scott Schmidt, alongside my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Jeremy, how's it going today? Hey, hey. Uh, it's, it's going, you know, pandemic life. I've been having a lot <laughs> of, like, weird apocalyptic dreams. Well, gee, I wonder why. It's almost like there's, like, a state of unrest in the world. Yeah. Um, well, our guest today is a doctor, so maybe she'll be able to tell. Right. She can tell you what's wrong with you. We didn't bring her here to offer virtual. uh, uh, She doesn't work for Babylon. Okay. (laughs) So uh, Mo Cranker, our editor, producer and everything in between. Um, How are you doing today, Mo? Doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm really well, actually, is under the circumstances, I suppose. So we don't want to take too long just talking amongst ourselves here. So we're going to get into our guest today. We're very pleased to have someone from the medical profession with us here today. And I think it's going to be a real treat for our listeners. Dr. Jillian Ratty has made a name for herself in Alberta from several angles. Born, raised, and educated in Calgary, the hometown family physician has served on the board of directors for the Alberta Medical Association, the Professional Association of Resident Physicians of Alberta, and the Resident Doctors of Canada. She is a current board member of the Canadian Doctors for Medicare, a clinical lecturer for the University of Calgary's Department of Family Medicine. She's taken a stab at federal politics, made waves as an outspoken activist on behalf of patient care, and through it all is somehow still a kisser of boo-boos. The Forgotten Corner is very excited to welcome Dr. Ratty to the show for our usual dive into who she is, what experience and motivations brought her to where she is today. And of course, we hope to bring in-depth perspective of what it's like to navigate through a pandemic while battling a government hell-bent on picking fights with the public sector. Jillian, welcome to the show. And if I may, Merry fucking Christmas. (laughs) Thank you very much. Merry forking Christmas to you too. How's it going, oh, Doc? Oh, you know, it's uh, it's a wild world right now. We're right, go. right. Yes. So obviously, we got a lot to talk about today, and uh, but when we bring someone on the Forgotten Corner, it's important that we let everybody know who they are and and what makes them tick. So this is the part where we sit back and let you tell a little bit about your life story. Um, As I said, born, raised, and educated in Calgary. Uh, So a lifelong Albertan. um, Go. Yes, that's exactly it. I was born in Calgary in the late 70s, and with the exception of a few years living in England, uh, I've been in Calgary the rest of the time. And um, so I know a lot about this place. And um, I guess, you know, I I ended up in medicine um, because I wanted to help people. 
and um, I didn't want to be poor anymore, to be quite honest. Um, I, I just figured that would be a good way to uh, kill two birds with one stone. Uh, do some good stuff and also just uh, figure out how to not be poor anymore. So here I am, I guess I achieved that. And that's, that's kind of really the, the, the short and sweet of how I became a doctor anyways. It's, it is certainly a challenge being a doctor in Alberta right now, but it's not surprising because having lived here my whole life, I've seen what conservative governments do. And uh, here we are, we're just doing our best with it. What was your upbringing like? Yeah, I grew up really poor. I grew up with a single mother. It was just me and my mother and uh, in Calgary. And um, I had what I needed and absolutely nothing more. Um, so it was, it, was, um, it was a modest upbringing, to say the least. Oh, so it was full of um, uh, RVs and fishing lodges. <laughs> Just Sorry, about- you haven't. You probably haven't been on Twitter much today yet, but uh. no, I haven't actually. Oh, no. So I don't we're like to. Scott. We're synced up. Like I was. I was just about to make that. Uh, I couldn't. I just couldn't help myself. But uh, we'll have to. We'll have to quick backstory that right now. But uh, yeah, yesterday our MLA from Brooks Medicine Hat here, Michaela Glasgow, um, gotten a little bit of heat on Twitter for a a pro pipeline speech in the legislation that was a little bit over the top. But today she uh, decided to clarify what she was saying, that she was really just talking about her humble upbringing where all they could afford was camping trips to the fishing lodge in their RV. Well, I don't know what to say about that. Um, Sorry. I mean, I, yeah, that's just, yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. What, what do I say about Ms. Glasgow? I mean, that I, I have nothing to say about that really. The one thing I do have to say is that without sounding as if I'm trying to out humble her is that um, an RV and camping would have been excellent in my childhood. Right. So, Um, yes. So you go to U of C, right? Yes. And what do you study as an undergraduate? Oh yeah, so I did a bachelor's degree in religious studies. And um, people always look at me a little funny, like why did you do that exactly? Um, And, or they ask me, did you want to be a nun or a a Sunday school teacher? And uh, no, none of that is true. Um, but essentially, I sort of stumbled into that. I, ha- I had always wanted to be a doctor. So I was taking kind of um, pre-med courses and doing biology and all this science and whatever. And I was taking, I ended up in a religious studies course as an option. And I decided I liked that better. And pretty much to go to medical school, you just need prerequisite courses. You don't need a science degree. So I switched. And I still got all the prerequisites I needed for medical school. And I decided to do what it was interesting to me. So yeah, I know a lot about world religions and all of them, which is really, you know, I, I loved that degree. I thought it was excellent. Very interesting stuff. That's a I'm very... not personally very religious at all, but um, it's something that really dominates the world and makes a, it's very influential in decision-making more and more so in Alberta, unfortunately. Um, so uh, yeah, I thought it was. Well, and it, it does that. help. It does help to understand um 
where people are what they where they think they're coming from or or this and some of the um impositions religion has had on our policy and and the way we run society and things like that if you do understand the religions them, themselves right so i i think i've actually met a few people that have done religious studies that uh, aren't religious at all and i wonder if that's maybe a, a trend um i wanted to ask you a little bit because i don't think you know i don't think it's uh, without making you pinpoint your place on the political spectrum i don't think anybody would argue that you're very much not conservative and you may have answered the question already just by talking about um, the conditions that you grew up with with your mom um, but how how are you not the typical Albertan conservative diehard um, that so many born and raised Albertans um, end up becoming especially um, in our generation yeah it's an excellent question and I've thought about that a fair amount it because in many ways I think that uh, people who grew up poor can kind of go one way or the other. They kind of end up, you know, all bootstrappy, like I did it and therefore everybody else should do it. And there's lots of people like that. And I could absolutely, I could take that on if I really wanted to be that person. <laughs> um, and, or you kind of go the other way and you say, look, that was really hard and it shouldn't be that hard. So maybe we should just do good things for other people instead. And I think, because of where I grew up, I actually, so I grew up in um, Kensington in Calgary. Uh, and I grew up, uh, it's kind of, I'm not sure how well you might know Calgary, but it's kind of a fancy area, right? It's now. a nice spot. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. Like it's very nice for now, but when I grew up, there was a working there. class. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's lovely and it's fancy. Love and Kensington, I yeah. honestly can't afford to live there right. <laughs> anymore. <laughs> right. But when I grew up there, it was very working class and it was, uh, you know, the, the people there were not generally wealthy. It was starting to gentrify as I got older. But when I was there, it was kind of the progressive hub of Calgary. And the people in my neighborhood, that was where, if you were going to be NDP, that was where you would live. Like, that was just sort of, that was the neighborhood. And it still is to a certain extent. I mean, there's an NDP MLA representing that area now. Um, so I think I was surrounded by a lot of uh, progressive people growing up. And so that's part of how I ended up this way, I suspect. Were you conscious of the political um, scene growing up in Calgary? Was it, I mean, I, sort of our upbringing shapes where we end up, but were you paying attention to um, politics in Alberta growing up and were you sort of, aware of what kind of conservative uh, governments and kinds of things that you were living under? Oh, absolutely. Uh, from a very young age, I was aware of that because it was something that impacted my life all the time, and especially Ralph Klein. I mean, it just, um, as soon as Ralph Klein was elected premier, things got very difficult for me and the people around me. And it was impossible to not know about it. Um, and yeah, he was awful frankly, uh, you know, cuts to education, cuts right. to healthcare. And I remember, you know, the recessions in Calgary in kind of the 90s where just shopping malls were empty and, you know, all buildings stopped and then Klein just slashed everything. Um, and he, yeah. he, he was very much rewarded 
for that austerity because of the boom that showed up a few years later, right? Like he got super lucky with this humongous boom and that sort of allowed Alberta to do all of these so-called, you know, pay off the debt and things like that. But the, the recovery from those cuts lasted a lot longer than just a few years. And he didn't seem to take, he, you know, King Ralph doesn't really get a lot of credit for all the scraping and crawling that, that those, um, sectors in our province had to do to get back to a place of respectability. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people will talk about the massive infrastructure deficit that he left. So, okay, the bank somehow was balanced, but that's you did that by not fixing roads, by not fixing buildings, by not investing in education. But there's just huge things that were left undone that we've had to redo. And we'll talk about it a bit more late, later, but the healthcare system was exactly that. And it, we only recently rebuilt our healthcare system from Klein. And now we've got Kenny trying to tear it down again. So it, it sounds to me uh, like your involvement in left-wing politics sort of came about as a response to the conditions you were seeing. Would that oh, yeah. be correct? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was a poor kid who was generally surrounded by other poor lower middle class kids who were all being very affected. And um, yeah, it was awful. And so how did you come to get involved in more uh, organized politics as opposed to just sort of being an observer? Through my medical training, I started doing kind of medical, political, political type things with the Alberta Medical Association and uh, resident physicians associations. And so that was my sort of first vague entry into that area, um, mostly because as a medical trainee, you just don't have the time or ability to broaden yourself outside of medicine. It's 100 hour work weeks for many years. Uh, for some people. And um, so I focused my advocacy within the profession for a time. And then sort of once I was finished all my training and working, um, all of a sudden, you know, a few years later, uh, the NDP wins provincially. And that's sort of like out of the blue, like where the heck did that come from? Um, and um, kind of found myself more motivated to be political outside of my profession. And it just felt like something I actually, I felt quite compelled to. I didn't feel like it was a choice in some sense. It was sort of, we have this amazing opportunity. All of a sudden, the government isn't conservative. Well, now what are we going to do? And I think I was acutely aware that uh, progressive spaces were not huge and that um, even though there's lots of dedicated activists in our world that the communities are small and there's not there's just not the same organization at all to draw upon as conservatives have they have huge infrastructure of volunteers and donors and organizations and um, I just knew that the NDP was not that big and I knew that progressive spaces were not that big and I just also knew that as a doctor I could have a voice that people would generally listen to so that's kind of how I ended up uh, deciding to run federally in 2015 feeling like I need to contribute to this this sort of movement that was happening and uh, help out somehow really 
There, um, <clears throat> there are a lot of doctors that we, you know, you see on Twitter and things like that, that um, are, are even worried about being anything but anonymous based on what people might say mm-hmm. or, or feel about how they feel. Um, did you have to weigh that much? And was it a, was it a big concern for you that by um, running for the federal NDP in, in Calgary center would be, uh, you know, seen derogatory, you know, bad by, by some of the people that maybe you have as patients even? Yes. So yes, I guess is my answer, but I decided I didn't care. (laughs) And that um, I had to say what I believe and work for what I believe, regardless of, you know, other people and their opinions. And I mean, overall, most people still, thankfully, on a community level are quite happy to engage in a professional relationship with someone, even if they don't have exactly the same beliefs as them. I don't think that most people expect to be in perfect alignment politically, religiously, in any sort of way with their doctor. I don't know that that's really important to most people. Um, I do know that there were two points in my professional career where I did lose a few patients because of my politics and running was one of them. I think we know the other one. (laughs) Yes, indeed. But the thing is, what I found fascinating is, I would say for everybody that I lost, I had more inquiries about, hey, can you be my doctor? I I think that it just means that I was attracting different people as patients and losing some people, but actually attracting more, to be honest. You've been really outspoken um, in your career for the rights of LGBTQ. And um, do you have some patients from that community that have come to you specifically knowing that you are uh, a friend and uh, they can trust um, who they're dealing with? Have you gained patients from, from that community? Yeah, a few, a few, um, not all, but a few. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, yeah, there's, a, there's um, a bit of a word on the street in that community about which physicians are friendly and which ones are less so. I think I'm on the friendly list, generally yes, speaking. Yes, yeah. How, how common is it for physicians to be politically active? Because as you suggested just now, it's not a profession that is typically politicized right like you're taking care of your patients regardless of their political views or economic status or uh, sexual or gender identity so are, are you somewhat anomalous in, in, in that regard or is there sort of like a group of like physicians who get together and try and pursue progressive political aims? I would say, I mean, prior to the current government's outright attacks on my profession, there were, there was a very small group of people doing political activism type work uh, in Alberta, quite small, to be honest, maybe a couple of handfuls. Um, It's more common outside of Alberta to be a progressive physician than it is inside of Alberta. And I mean, I suppose that's just reflective of the general political environment in Alberta. Before 
the attacks on physicians recently, I felt quite lonely-ish, but I am connected with a national network of physicians who do progressive type activism. So I, I really leaned upon them a lot of the time. And, uh, but more recently, I've been quite pleasantly surprised about how many physicians are becoming politically active. Um, but, and kind of back to your point about some physicians feeling uncomfortable and wanting to be anonymous. I mean, that, um, I would say that that's new, that the, the wanting to be anonymous thing is new. And I think there's something big that has changed in the past five years. I mean, when I decided to run federally, I knew that there could be some ramifications in terms of some of my patients not wanting to see me anymore if they disagreed with my political beliefs. I, I, I kind of had that understanding. At that point, it certainly never occurred to me that being a political physician would be, would feel like, feel dangerous, frankly. Like it would never have, at that point, it wouldn't have felt concerning to me in a real way. You know, maybe I'll have some awkward conversations with people, but, but I think that now if you, to the doctors who don't wish to be named in Twitter or who are loath to go on TV and criticize the government, they will tell you because that it's because they fear retribution from the government. Mm-hmm. And that is something profoundly different. Um, and it's honestly, I mean, five years ago, I never thought about that. It never occurred to me that that would ever be a problem. And so by the time this sort of retribution concern came along, I was already so public that I couldn't really pull back and try and be anonymous at that point. So I don't know if I, maybe I would have wanted to be anonymous had I known that there would be a retribution element to uh, speaking out. And tell us a bit uh, about the UCP's conflict with doctors. Can we, could we, I, before we get into that, because yeah. we're going to spend a long time there, I want to, I want to um, ask you two quick questions. One about the federal politics. I want to then talk about how, what it means, like how the kind of training that is involved in becoming a doctor. So first, the r- running in 2015, what did you learn? How did it change your um, sort of approach to activism? Uh, so what did I learn? I learned that it's really hard to be a political candidate. And I learned that if you want to do it well, it is all consuming. Um, And I learned a lot of other very basic skills like how to order political signs and how to coordinate volunteers and how to knock on doors and talk to people. And that was all really quite fascinating. It was just a totally different world from anything else I'd ever done before. And um, I mean, I ran a relatively low budget campaign, so I did a lot of the management stuff myself. So it was just a really interesting life experience, to be honest. And it gave me a major window also into the power dynamics and I already knew that conservatism was entrenched in Alberta, but I think seeing the massive resources that are available to conservative candidates in comparison to what I had was really eye-opening 
um, in terms of the massive extent to which conservatives have a leg up on everybody else all the time. So yeah, yeah. I, in terms of how it affected my activism, I mean, it, uh, I also, I have an appreciation for how hard it is to be a politician that I think a lot of activists don't have. And I think I'm a lot more sympathetic to them. There's a lot of um, discussions in Alberta about, you know, the left-wing activists at Alberta NDP for not having been left-wing enough and for not having pushed hard enough or done enough. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of those criticisms are very, very valid. But at the same time, I, I think having run as a candidate, I, I have a better understanding of why they did what they did, having knocked on so many doors and to actually talked to people. Well, this is the one thing that sort of where I try to kind of say, give a pass, because again, like, um, I think you're right, like, the the leftists that wanted to see more out of the NDP absolutely have a valid criticism there. And we've both Jeremy and I have asked NDP politicians in private and publicly, like, could they not have done more bold things knowing that they weren't going to win over the uh, far right or the conservative Alberta base over oil and gas? But I do believe sort of um, like you're saying, when politicians, um, I think maybe like the Alberta NDP would follow more what public opinion or what they perceive public opinion to be. And so if we want to change how they govern or, or promise to govern, we need to change public opinion. I think some of those leftists would argue that that public opinion has already changed quite a bit. I just don't know if it's getting the airtime and the play to, to sound as big as it is. But moving on past that, um, go ahead, Jeremy. I noticed that you have a chapter uh, in this book yeah. by best yeah. friend, by best friend <laughs> of the show, Roberta Lexier, edited by her. Can you tell us a bit about how that came to be? You were writing about the aftermath of the 2017 NDP leadership campaign, which was won by Jagmeet Singh. How did that essay come together? And what, what do you have to say about the leadership campaign? Yeah, I mean, I got asked to write that chapter after I participated in a session at an academic conference about the NDP leadership. I was on a panel discussing at a, an academic conference where uh, Roberta was, was there. I think she was one of the organizers of that conference actually. And so she asked me to write an essay afterward, kind of talking about how the leadership race went. And um, so I took her up on it and it was, uh, it was excellent fun. I don't do a whole lot of academic writing and I don't know, that was, it was, really neat um what do I think about the leadership well you can read the essay I suppose and find out <laughs> it feels like a long time ago the federal leadership so much has happened since then that I can hardly even remember it to be honest you know we have uh, a federal leader who is somewhat controversial it is what it is and uh, I think again um, a lot of left-wing activists see the party as not left-wing enough and I think you know, there's a fair amount of racism within the park as well. And uh, so our leader has his, uh, his work cut out for him. Moving on, I want, we want to talk about doctor stuff. So one of the things that people, we, we sort of the discussions that happens around this physician argument is, um, you know, doctors make a lot of money, right? And 
one of the things that I think people don't understand about physicians is the time um, that it takes to become a doctor. Just quickly, can you just sort of give us the linear timeline of, of what it was to become a doctor from a high school graduate to full-on physician? Yeah, it's quite a while. So um, each medical school is a little bit different, but all of them require either three years of an undergraduate degree or a full undergraduate degree before you can be admitted to medical school. So um, I did have an undergraduate degree. And so then after that, I actually, I also did a master's degree in international relations. I forgot to mention that earlier, but I, so I did an undergraduate degree. I did a master's degree and then I went to medical school for three years. So that takes us to five, eight years of, post-secondary education, classroom-based education. And then after you finish medical school, you need to do a residency program. So it's like an apprenticeship for doctors, really. And that is anywhere between two and five years or more. I mean, doctors can subspecialize until forever if they want to, but the typical postgraduate residency training might be two to five years. So for me... I did four, five, eight, ten, oh, uh, about 11 years, because my residency was about three years, which is a bit atypical. But um, so I did about 11 years of training to become a family doctor. So 11 years of post-secondary schooling and training. And I'm just guessing from your backstory that you weren't doing that off of the uh, funding of a trust fund or, or a big college fund that your mom had saved up. I'm guessing there was some student loans involved. Huge numbers of student loans. Right. So this is the <laughs> I'm thing, I'm still right? paying off the student loans. <laughs> right. I, it feels a little like indentured servitude. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know what to say. I, I'm I'm going to be 42 and I'm still paying off student loans. So this so. is the thing, right? Like you've been a family physician for nine years, I think you told me before, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So yeah. nine years of supposedly making all this money that everybody talks about and you still have student loans to pay off. So that's the a perspective that I just wanted to offer to people before we kind of get into this fight because anyone that listens to this from the sort of UCP standpoint is going to try to A, point to your NDP roots. They're going to B, try to point to how much money you make these kinds of things and I think it's important that our listeners understand that be on top of running a clinic um, there is a lot of time and resources that it takes to become a doctor in the first place so when the NDP or sorry the UCP introduced its first budget back in October um, it was sort of the beginning of what we already knew as far as um, some of the things that they were going to start imposing upon um, Albertans and physicians as a whole. It was right around November when um, they had just finished doing the legislation that allowed them to tear up binding contracts, but they hadn't torn yours up yet. But they were talking about what they were basically trying to bully you into taking some fee changes. And it was around that time when you put out a video on Twitter 
um, um, expressing your distaste for that. And for the listeners uh, that are still wondering why I said Merry fucking Christmas at the beginning of this podcast, um, that was how uh, Dr. Rowdy signed off on this. Uh, what we as a podcast would say was a fantastic video that is no longer online. But can you just talk a little bit about the frustration that you were feeling at the time? And um, then we'll get into sort of what the reaction was to the video. Yeah, I think that the frustration is ongoing because the goal and the audacity, it knows no bounds with this government. And um, so, I mean, at the time, the frustration was primarily from legislation to tariff contracts, which as anyone who watches politics knows that you don't legislate that unless you intend to use it. It's not just there for kicks. Um, so I could see that coming. And then also legislation that is blatantly corrupt that fires the elections commissioner who's investigating the governing party. Uh, I mean, it, between that and uh, tearing up contracts and then also the garbage around Bill 207, which was just this really, really offensive pandering to a social conservative base that- 207 also, was the conscience um, rights bills for our listeners. Yes, conscience rights, exactly. Which is essentially part of a foot in the door tactic to reduce uh, access to abortion and medical assistance in dying and care for trans people. So uh, yeah, so some of the, 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 the garbage around Bill 207, it, it was just so frustrating to me. It was so blatantly obvious that they were trying to push Alberta in a social conservative way. And I was also quite frustrated with a lot of my colleagues at that point um, because, you know, again, I'm kind of one of the political ones and I'm out there saying, you know, the government is going to mess with our contract and they kept saying oh no don't worry it's gonna be fine like no like really can you just listen like really <laughs> no no it's fine and same with conscience rights there was a lot of people in my sphere who were like well it's no big deal really it's just about like conscience rights and you know already doctors don't have to do anything this blah, blah, blah. no but the the point of this is not actually conscience rights the point of this is to make it socially acceptable to talk about whether abortion should be legal or not. It's part of a very slow progression toward trying to limit access. So in any case, there's frustration with the government, frustration with my people, frustration all around. But wasn't there something in 207 where it was going to allow doctors to not even have to refer you like before you could say, I don't feel right doing this particular procedure. Here's a doctor that you can go to, to see who will didn't 207 include a clause where they wouldn't even have to refer you. So yes. you literally be cut off. Yeah. So yes, the right now, the professional standard in Alberta is such that if a woman approaches a, a physician and says, I would like to talk to somebody about an abortion, that physician, if they are morally opposed to abortion, cannot just say no 
and show her out the door, they have to provide her with minimum phone number of somebody who will talk to them about that. So the Bill 207 was going to take away the requirement for referral in its first iteration. Even now, honestly, even the way things are, a lot of doctors don't do that. Physicians who are opposed to abortion, there is much anecdotal evidence from women about physicians who have have just turned women away and made them feel very judged and very awful for even having asked. So that the way things are in my mind right now is not adequate. And Bill 207 was going to make it even worse. So we know where you were at frustration wise. So we don't want to spend too much time talking about the video, but I mean, they really jumped on this thing for a lot of different reasons. And they tried to make your uh, use of profanity to be this thing that no one would have ever heard before. Apparently like none of us have ever said the word fuck. And so if a female doctor says it, this is the worst thing ever. Did you expect that level of, of sort of vitriol from that side, as far as them trying to pin it in that angle on you as uh she's uh i think the post-millennial said you lost your mind right so yeah yeah the post-millennial it's hilarious really and then <laughs> yeah they they put a picture like they freeze framed me with like a crazy look on my face as well <laughs> if i recall but um you know no i didn't i didn't think they would care what i had to say to be honest i knew that there could be political ramifications. I knew that it was going into public space and so people could get angry about it. And I didn't care about that at the time at all. And, but it really did surprise me the extent to which they grabbed onto that and ran with it and personally made it, it they just really came after me in a way that was quite stunning. I, I honestly just don't think I'm that important. So it was surprising to me that they decided that this was important. Does that video happen if you're a, a male doctor who didn't run for the federal NDP? Does I, that, does that reaction question. happen? Uh, you know, I, I think that there may have been a reaction. I suspect it would not have been anywhere near what the reaction actually was. I think that any doctor swearing into a camera would have attracted attention, but the, yeah, wow. Like the publicity of it and it, and, you know, having somebody in the premier's office specifically target me and knowingly present all of that to the waiting conservative troll hordes on the internet is, just uh, I still I'm speechless about it speechless. and then tried to bring down Barb Silva too from um support yeah, our students for right? having so the gall to retweet retweet it right like, oh it's just uh, yeah it was uh an interesting strategy of trying to kind of box left-wing women left-wing advocates into the same kind of category and discredit us all at the same time it was it's fascinating really I messed up, but fascinating too. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about the sort of battles between the PCs and the medical profession under Ralph Klein specifically. Would you say, though, that this 
conflict with the government is much more venomous and aggressive than previous uh, dust-ups with the province? So I've spoken with some of my older colleagues who were around for the last time that the government of Alberta decided to <laughs> villainize an entire medical profession. And they see a lot of parallels. So, and actually it's interesting. So my, my older colleagues talk about things like, you know, all of a sudden I started getting mail from recruiters in the United States completely unsolicited and stuff like that's happening too right now <laughs> and um it, it's uh for them it they wondered you know back in the 90s is the government trying to push us out like are they trying to encourage us are they trying to get other people to recruit us <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels between what happened then and what happened now but i think yeah it is a particular variety of venom that we're seeing this time around even compared to Klein, who was awful and cruel and mean and dismissive and used a lot of really, um, you know, a lot of stereotypes about doctors in the same way that Kenny is right now to, to kind of push his point about needing to cut from physician services. But yes, there's something different about this. There's, I think, something very malicious and very disrespectful and very intentionally all of those things with this and, government that's different. And why do you think that is? That's, I mean, that's a really good question. I, when this government got elected, I knew that they were going to do horrible things. I knew that this was coming. The degree to which they have decided to make doctors the enemy is something that had surprised me. And um, I always assumed that there were enough donors among my people to the UCP that that would not protect us. Of course not, not protect us. But it surprises me that they've clearly made the political calculation that they do not need doctors to win the next election is really, I think, what we're seeing. They have made the calculation that in order to privatize healthcare, they need to dismantle the Alberta Medical Association and they need to have way more control over how, what, and where doctors work. So they are willing to uh, be as cruel and as dishonest and as underhanded as they need to be in order to pursue the objective that is ultimately privatizing as much of the healthcare system as they can get away with. And doctors will get in the way of privatizing healthcare because they know it's bad for patients. Honestly, even my conservative colleagues are pro-public healthcare. So the, this, the, the government knew that the big barrier between them and an increasingly privatized system was actually physicians, physicians and nurses. And so they're doing everything they can to just take a sledgehammer to that relationship between government and doctors. Now, one thing that we liked about you uh, months and months ago was that before any of the um, fruition had evolved, you, you were already outspoken about um, 
what this might mean for people. And, and I know that I was writing even before people knew what laying it out my column was, I was writing about privatized healthcare plans from Kenny La uh, before the election. And I warned going into the budget that they were going to do it. That's how laying it out began. And you were all over it. Um, have you have like you have you say you have these conservative doctor friends like are are there any that are still like left like do they like in what <laughs> are like what they now that they've actually seen sort of what what is happening like are there actual UCP supporters in the physician community I suspect there's a handful who are too scared to admit it to everybody else I mean I, I just <laughs> There's probably a few out there, but the vast majority, even though they would probably self-describe as conservative, would uh, would never vote for the UCP again. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And I've, I've actually been shocked at how many of my colleagues have said, you know, I miss Rachel a whole lot. Like, <laughs> right. Uh, and again, that frustrates me to no end because, I mean, I've been telling everybody for like years that this was going to happen and I hate the fact that I'm right and that nobody listened to me. <laughs> well, and so this is the, this is the other thing, right? Because um, I, I remember early on in writing, I got a, a, a letter to the editor from an unhappy uh, Medicine Hat News subscriber who was accusing me of saying that the sky was going to fall and these kinds of yeah. things. I was just oh, yes. about these kinds of things. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, if 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 all of these things like let's say your video had came out this month or any of these things that are happening now that covid is something that people know is a thing do you think that the public perception of doctors um is maybe um not not what the ucp was hoping to create well yeah i think that the the ucp is likely disappointed that they have not been able to shift public opinion against physicians. Um, I, because I, I don't think they have at all. I think most people are not really buying this whole doctors are just greedy. And it's not a good time to not. try to sell that. Oh, it's an awful time. And I suspect, you know, in some ways, uh, the UCP is happy that COVID is here because they get to do a lot of stuff and people aren't noticing it. But um, when it comes to their plans to try and destroy the Alberta Medical Association and their plans to try and um, kind of bust through the wall of physicians who are trying to stop them from privatizing, I mean, I think they're annoyed at COVID for that particular aspect of things because people are incredibly supportive of healthcare professionals right now. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, and yeah, my video, I mean, if my video now, I, I, I am quite certain that um, my colleagues would feel more comfortable with it than they did a few months ago. And I bet you Matt Wolf would feel a lot less comfortable acting like an asshole about it too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. To, oh, I think that would not have happened <laughs> at all now. <laughs> but even that video, I mean, uh, yeah. So yeah, most of my colleagues at the time of that were kind of just sort of whatever. I mean, but now I think I've been, I think in some ways a little vindicated with events as of late. So. And what's it like being a physician during 
in unprecedented in our lifetime global pandemic while your profession is simultaneously under attack by a government. So COVID in and of itself is the most terrifying thing that I have ever encountered in my life. I, I don't think I have words to truly impress upon you and your listeners the, the total terror that physicians and healthcare professionals were feeling about two months ago. We're sitting in a place in June 2020 where things have been contained quite nicely and people are really breathing a lot of sighs of relief. But two to three months ago, most physicians were about to lose their minds. Um, I've never seen my people so anxious and so scared. And to have to be fighting the government and be worried about how the government is going to stab you in the back while we are collectively trying to deal with our generation's biggest, biggest challenge existentially. I don't have words for it. It's just been awful. It has been so hard. And I think that the mental health of physicians is at an all time low. And I think that you really have to be completely incompetent and completely cruel and heartless to do that to the people who are tasked with making sure that Albertans stay safe through the pandemic of a lifetime. We, we talked a lot about how we saw this coming. We knew what kind of government the UCP was going to be. The privatization mandate was just so obvious. This neoliberal playbook was just so obvious. They were kind of bragging about it coming in. So that kind of leads me to my question right now, because some of the things that they say or do, I can't believe how out in the open they are about it. Like we had the the April 1st fee changes were to kick in, right? Then Chandra pulls some of these things back. And of course, we have to make sure everybody understands these were some things that they were pulling back. They were, they would implement a bunch of things and then pull one or two things back and make this big announcement. But even as public was demanding that they uh, fight less with doctors and demanding that they don't do these things during a pandemic. I couldn't even believe it when Jason Kenney uh, at one point after some of the walkbacks came up and said, just so you know, we're going to have to make some changes to all this when this pandemic is over. And I just find that the, the level of sort of bravado that they have to say some of these things um, and, and it's almost like this cockiness of this, like no one's go. Does, did you expect that type of, of sort of unabashed um, vocalization of what they're doing? No. Again, the audacity, I always knew they were audacious and cruel and that they would do awful things. But the level to which they are willing to just openly be cruel is quite phenomenal to behold and uh i you know and i i think i I can't finish this interview without talking a little bit about the double speak that's been going on because it's so yeah they'll put a bunch of stuff out and then pull back a couple of things and then they're they're blatantly lying about most of what's happening with billing and physicians and um the various cuts to healthcare. i mean 
if you talk to any of their comms people, they're going to tell you that there are no cuts. Like, of course there's cuts. Like, what? What are you talking about? And so when it came to all the physician billing stuff that they were pulling in the middle of a pandemic, like, I can't even believe you would do this in the middle of a pandemic that has the potential to kill huge numbers of people. Like, it blows my mind that they were doing this in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and, but I guess the reason that they could do it is because they just planned on lying about doing it the whole time, you know? So according to the public, you know, maybe they don't know some of what actually happened. And you, there you go. You see that too oh, with education. Uh, that oh, absolutely. When, when you said the government makes these cuts and then they say, what are you talking about? We, we're, I didn't we're, cut. Yeah, we're keeping the budget <laughs> flat, which never mind is a cut, but it's also not true. Has there been efforts in the medical profession to team up or express solidarity with people in other professions in the public sector that are also under attack? Of course, nurses, I think, um, goes without saying, but teachers and that sort of, those sort of persons? Yeah, I... I'm under the impression that there have been discussions between teachers, doctors, nurses, and um, the HCAA, the other uh, other healthcare workers, if you will. Um, and they don't have formal alliances at this point, but I think that underneath it all, each of those professional groups and unions knows very well that if one of these groups gets pushed around, they're coming for the others. So um, that has been somewhat heartening for me because doctors are not what I would call amazing at solidarity because they tend to be quite wealthy people and they tend to be, um, they're just a little outside the organized labor kind of, they're just not your typical organized labor organization. So um, it's been nice to see my colleagues be very pro-teacher, pro-nurse. I, I've really enjoyed to see, seeing that. You love to see it. Now, I do. <clears throat> we've talked a few times and I just, because doctors do okay, right? Doctors make decent money at the end of the day. And uh, I mean, you even said that it was, you know, you were thinking a little bit about not being poor when you were going to do it. And some mm -hmm. of these doctors, um, this is sort of the ammo that they have to use back on you guys, right? That they, that like, you're, you're better paid than anyone else. You're made more money than a doctor in PEI, whatever the fuck that's supposed to mean, these kinds of things. When I have talked to a few healthcare professionals um, quietly, they have sort of said, it's not so much the money that's the issue here. It's, it's the, uh, the trust or the whatever. Um, can we just talk about that a little bit? Because I, um, for anyone that's listening that thinks like, well, I don't understand why doctors are complaining they do just fine um for you i think it goes beyond the money anyways well yeah i mean it's it absolutely goes beyond the money for me um i i, I do i totally do do fine despite the fact that i have a bunch of debt i'm fine um and doctors are fine it's not about that don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of room for improvement when it comes to physician compensation. I think there's a lot of good questions to be asked about 
I mean, should doctors make that much money? I don't know. I'm in a place where I feel like inequality is a bad thing all over. So, I, you know, a lot of my colleagues would disagree with me here, but I, I actually think doctors probably should make less. But um, really not what's at issue here at all. The Alberta Medical Association and physicians were quite willing to take a cut. They were quite willing to talk about making less money. And the government didn't want to talk about how we could make less money. They wanted to just impose things. They didn't want to negotiate. They didn't want to give doctors a say in how that was going to happen. And that is a bad idea when physicians are a major part of how the healthcare system runs. So really, physicians were not saying, don't cut our salary. Even now, we're not saying that, don't cut our fees. No doctor is saying that anywhere. <laughs> All doctors were expecting to not make as much money next year. And that was okay with the vast majority of us. The problem is that we wanted to have a say in how that was going to happen because the way doctors are paid has a big effect on how healthcare services are delivered. And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, if you're going to cut uh, a time modifier for a family doctor, that means that most Albertans are going to have really superficial and poor interactions with their family doctors every time they go. So that's fine. You can pay us less, but can we talk about how to do it so that we can preserve the quality of interactions at the same time? And we had a lot of good ideas about how to do that, actually. So that's part of the frustration. And, it's, and in fact, it's the entire frustration it is the lack of desire from the government to work with us on how to do this. And I think it's more evidence that the goal is not about money. The goal is about destabilizing a system and causing chaos in a system in order to privatize a lot of it. Another parallel with education. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is just the mandate. It doesn't really matter the sector. The thing is, is that healthcare and education are our largest expenditures as government. And so those are going to take the brunt of the cuts if they really wanted to implement this kind of austerity. But this is just a quick quote from Steve Buick, who's a communications oh, for the no. Ministry of Health, because this was <laughs> the government's response back last November um, when doctors said that these fee changes were going to be uh, problematic. Buick said the proposals would apply to all doctors, not just family practitioners, as if it's a better thing that everybody was, you're all going to get screwed. So it's not just you family doctors. Okay. We're doing this to everybody. It's yeah. like Oprah Winfrey. This is, you get screwed. You right. <laughs> right. This is the quote. Nothing in our proposals will harm the ability of family doctors to give comprehensive primary care. Buick wrote. The minister looks forward to working through the issues with the AMA at the bargaining table. We're not going to negotiate in the media. Now, how well did that age, when that was in November uh, 2019 quote, and it wasn't too long until contracts were torn up. And so I think like it's pretty clear that their motive, their negotiation tactics are you'll do it this way or we'll write a lot of to, to sidestep your goals anyways. Right. And so I don't want, we want to um, get close to wrapping up here. So I want to move to a little bit of the future a bit, because I think that we, um, if this is just 
example of the way that this government uh, wants to govern. And if you're a fan of austerity, congratulations, it's going to be coming in ways that you've never thought you could imagine. So uh, I hope you're happy with that. What I would like to talk about quickly with you, uh, Jillian, before we let you go is maybe imagine from an Alberta that you would want to see your kids grow up in maybe top of the list items that would would something that you would like to see so what, what kind of a sort of medical maybe based ideas would you have that would improve Alberta for the future I would like to, I mean from a healthcare perspective I would like to see maintained and increased investment in public health care I would like to see pharmacare implemented. I would like to see long-term care uh, taken out of the private realm. I would like to see, you know, I, for, and for me, so for me, health expands beyond what we think of traditionally as the healthcare system. The vast majority of a person's health has nothing to do with what happens in my office or in a hospital. So when I look at the things that we can do to make Albertans' lives healthier ones. I also think about things like affordable childcare and uh, free public transit and a very broad, a very well-funded social safety net that allows everybody to self-actualize and allows everybody to have basic access to bettering themselves through education, um, affordable post-secondary education. I mean, I, I have personal experience with trying to navigate social services of all varieties that are chronically and increasingly underfunded. And so from my perspective, the community would do much better with uh, well-funded public services all around. Um, the other thing that I really would like to see is an actual democracy in Alberta. <laughs> I would like to see, and I don't know that it's really ever existed in a way that I think democracy should exist. To me, most governments really are mouthpieces for the oil and gas industry in Alberta. They are not representative of the people Facts. of Alberta, they are representative of the oil and gas industry. And that is not democracy at all. So I would like to see a government in Alberta that actually represents people. And that, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that business shouldn't ever talk to government, but I am saying that government should be better at telling billionaires and major industries that they need to contribute to the community. Now, Jeremy, you'll know maybe more about this stuff than I do, but I always notice that, you know, people that end up in politics come from the business community or lawyers or big one um, in Canada. You don't really see a lot of doctors and scientists and academics um, end up in politics. Now, I think that we could talk about that in a very broad context, but is it, why do you think maybe, like, I don't even see them running, I guess. Like, I, it's not that they're not getting elected, but maybe Jeremy knows more of those that obscure candidates that ran and lost, but I don't see a lot of science 
Hawks even trying to run? Well, I, um, I don't know of any physicians off the top of my head besides uh, Dr. Ravi who have run for office in Canada, but in the U.S. you can't forget Dr. Ron Paul, Dr. Jill Stein. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's interesting that, at least in the States, a lot of these candidates who are physicians are on the fringes, it, which just occurred to me. Um, wh- what do you make of that, and what, what's it like in Canada? I mean, the physicians, uh, there have been, you might just not know they're physicians. So Kelly Leach is an orthopedic surgeon. Um, Dr. Jane Philpott was health minister federally until her and Jody Wilson-Raybould kind of jumped liberal shift there. Dr. Carson in the States, who is a very accomplished physician, or surgeon rather, he's like a brain surgeon. Yeah, yeah, but he's. Yeah, maybe I take it back. Like, maybe doctors shouldn't run for politics. Like right? he believes, like he believes the Bible is the word of God, or at least yeah. he says Not? he does. Wait, yeah. Sorry, no, different podcast, but it's totally the <laughs> word of God, Jeremy. It's not fucking blasphemy. I have one last question about maybe something that I don't know if this is a solution, but uh, Kate Jacobson, who hosts the Alberta Advantage um, podcast, some listen to she posed a question on twitter like why don't we just make doctors public employees and it seemed like a really good idea to me and i liked it or retweeted or something and a couple other people were like hey pros and cons kind of thing and so to me it seems like certainly on one hand it would rid any accusations of overbilling or double billing that they're trying to pin on doctors but on the other hand, the public sector doesn't exactly have a, a good reputation among in Alberta because of the way that they're portrayed. Um, is that something that you uh, would back or have thought about? Is that is it a good idea, a bad idea? Under any government other than the current one, I would generally be supportive of that. Um, and I, I know, and I say that knowing that most of my colleagues would disagree vehemently with that. But I I do think that physicians should be civil servants. And I would really appreciate having a stable salary with benefits and all of that rather than doing this odd financial gymnastics that really is fee-for-service medicine. So I know that I'm alone in that. But yes, I like that idea a lot. Um, Fee-for-service billings also, I mean, fee-for-service work is very gendered a gendered way to pay men always make more money in a fee-for-service environment than women do and i think that um we could do a lot of good things with uh making physicians public employees yeah but doctors would argue that that would decrease their professional autonomy and that we would then be as employees beholden to the government in terms of the way that we could practice medicine and so as a self-regulating profession, there would be huge amounts of pushback the idea. I think we've already got lots, to, lots of audio to work with and lots for Mo to do. So um, we're going to wrap it up here. Jeremy, do you have any uh, last questions that you want or one last question you want to ask the doc? No, but I do want to thank her for taking um, a significant fraction of her afternoon to chat with us about these totally. very important issues and to give us her expert perspective, both in the realm of the medical profession, but also uh, politically. 
So thank and, you, Jillian. Yeah, thank no you. problem. Doctor. It's fine. And you can call me Jillian. It's fine. This is I call also you Jill? the. <laughs> or is that Christ. is that pushing it? He well, every time he has to do something every time. Anyway, there seems to you know there's a lot of people offering their thanks to the healthcare profession, and obviously from the bottom of our hearts we would do the same. But I want to take that just a little bit further. I'd like to just thank you for actually standing up because um, I've said this before and I'll say it a million more times until there's changes made. If the people that are affected by the uh, austerity measures by this government do not stand up and say something, if they are too afraid to fight back or say something in response, it will still happen and we will have missed our opportunity to at least get people's attention. So from our, from our side, we really appreciate you doing things like that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I know you have a million things to do, a million things on the go. So we really appreciate you having you, uh, having you this week. And um, we, like I've said to other guests, we reserve the right to bring you back on and do this again sometime. But Absolutely. thank you. It's in the you. agreement you signed. That's right. Excellent. Yeah, that's right. In the <laughs> consent form. But anyways, um, that's it for our show this week, you guys. Thank you so much for sticking around and listening. Um, we hope to do this with another fabulous guest next week. In the meantime, stay safe, be healthy, and love you guys. Take care. Fare thee well.